This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Is there a new crisis at the border? Title 42 is over. We go in-depth. Twitter has a new CEO, but will she thrive under Elon Musk? Also, can science and medicine lead us to immortality? We'll talk to a doctor who maybe can answer that question. Do you know how many bills you're going to get from a doctor if we live forever? A doctor told me I was going to live to be 95, and I said, dude, I'm tired now. (laughs) We start with the end of Title 42 and how border cities are responding. With us is uh, Dr. Victor Trevino, mayor of Laredo, Texas, who signed a declaration of disaster for the city ahead of the end of Title 42. Thanks for being with us. Are you there? Hello? There, there we go. Thank okay. you for having me. I am <laughs> You're there. Here. Okay. Uh, so I mentioned that you had signed a so-called declaration of disaster for the city uh, before the end of Title 42. How are things shaping up now that it has ended? Well, we're seeing some historic challenges in our border. And Laredo continues to be one of the safest cities with the second lowest illegal border crossings in the country. But nevertheless, we have been informed that we will be receiving transfer from Brownsville, Texas, and El Paso, Texas, that are currently overwhelmed. So our fear is that we will also be overwhelmed when these transfers of migrants get here. I grew up on the border, and as a doctor, I'm in the trenches every day, and I'm concerned that too many migrant transfers can cause more stress in an already stressed medical infrastructure. We don't have a pediatric ICU. And with the arrival of family units, I don't want to see any child get gravely ill and not be able to treat them. So at this point, we're boarding up like if it were a hurricane, like a hurricane is coming. But we have to make sure some of the challenges will be to make sure that we balance our resources of our community and the humanitarian efforts that the migrants need. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is a a federal problem that has been here for decades, and now it has become a local problem for our communities, especially border communities. So that's where we are at this point. So just to clarify, with with the end of this Title 42, uh, it's it's now over. Have you seen this influx? Have you seen the hurricane hit yet? Is it something you're still waiting for? Well, the, the hurricane has hit on most of the other border cities of Texas. But here in Laredo, we're a a transfer center. We will be getting all the transfers for processing from the other border cities. So when the transfer starts to get here, we'll be overwhelmed just like they are. We're aware that about 150,000 or more migrants are waiting in Mexico and the border cities to cross the border. And now that the Title 42 is lifted, I mean, that that's going to start. And I'm pretty sure not the same day, but Within the next coming days, I think we'll be there. You were saying that when this this sort of, as you expect it to be, a kind of tidal wave of uh, migrants hits Laredo, your town, that uh, you know there are going to be repercussions. You mentioned for medical care. How else, when you say that you're worried that the town is going to become overwhelmed, overburdened? Describe briefly to us what that actually means so that people who don't live in Laredo get it. Right. Well, starting with hospital, like we said, but our resources are limited. Our our city budget is limited. We don't have areas to house thousands of migrants. We only have two or three NGOs, and their capacity is only about 
1,500, and that's nothing. Drop in the bucket to the thousands we, we will be referred from other places. So that in itself, you know, we have also a, a we're the largest land port or the largest port in the United States for commerce. And if we get the, the officials from the from the bridges being pulled out to handle the crisis of the migrants, it could impact our, our, our international trade, which is the lifeblood supply, not even to Texas, but to the rest of the country. So those are the things that, that we're looking at. All right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Victor Trevino, mayor of Laredo, Texas. Still ahead, would you want, if you had the opportunity, to live forever? Doctor says science could help us with that, and we'll talk to him soon. It depends, actually. The answer <laughs> to that question, Rob, is it depends how much like, either rent or mortgage I have to right, pay. Right, right. If that's forever, the answer is no. <laughs> if there's a cutoff, then, yeah. then that's different. Right now, though, Elon Musk has announced Twitter's new CEO. It's Linda Yacarino the former advertising chief for NBC Universal. So here with us is Ian Schreer, who is a tech reporter and has covered Twitter and all things Silicon Valley over the years. And Andy Monet, a business uh, optimization consultant. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Of course, thanks for, thanks having, for having us. So, Ian, let me start with, with you. Um, you know, there are some situations where you kind of look at it and you go, uh-oh, this is going to be trouble for the person who was hired. Uh, because of cultural differences, perhaps, because the person who did the hiring may not be all that conventional. I think that kind of describes uh, Elon Musk. So is she being set up? Yeah. So is she being set up to fail? Well, you know, that's actually a really great question. It's something that uh, a lot of people on Twitter, of course, have actually brought up is this concern called the glass cliff, right? Essentially, where we've seen women put in charge of companies that are struggling. Think of Yahoo with Marissa Mayer, right? She came from Google, Ellen Powell over at Reddit. Um, and even we had an example with uh, Activision Blizzard, right, the video game maker. Jen O'Neill was brought in as the first female lead of that uh, group after it had major sexual misconduct issues. So there is this trend that we see that women tend to be put in charge in these bad moments and they're essentially set up to fail. I think there's also this other question that we all have, which is what is Elon Musk going to do, right? I mean, he owns the company. He's made it clear that it runs on his very whim and having someone else who's supposedly has a higher title than him, um, at least organizationally, even though he's the owner, raises a lot of questions about how this is going to work. Uh, Andy, I after it was clear that she was going to be who Elon was naming, I kind of felt bad for her because already on Twitter it began. And uh, out there on the web, the reactions from some quarters were, oh, somebody that Elon Musk wants to take over. We don't like her. And then from the uh, far right <laughs> side, uh, they saw her connections to the World Economic Forum and said, oh, we don't like her. So she was getting it from both ends. Is she going to be able to overcome that? You know, this is a really vague answer, but I think it really depends on her, right? I mean, we all have obstacles, and she's in a really big challenge right now, having to be the CEO of, you know, Twitter. And I happen to believe that going back to the question of is she put in a bad spot, what I have found is two things. Either they're put in that place because they don't have any other choice and they might as well roll the dice, or they believe that maybe they need to think out of the box so that they can find somebody who might be able to actually champion this challenge and succeed in it. 
You know, I, there's a part of me, Ian, uh, actually either one of you wants to answer this, that kind of wonders <laughs> whether or not we're all making too much out of Twitter. You know, people in, in, in showbiz use Twitter. People in the news organization use Twitter. But an awful lot of people don't use Twitter. So maybe I guess my question is, why do we care? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, Andy, do you want to go first? No, go ahead, Ian. So, so you know, I think the real answer I've always come back to is the influence that Twitter has on our culture, right? I mean, presidential politics happened on Twitter. It still does to some degree. Uh, a lot of the movers and shakers within the media world, entertainment, sports, they're all on there. And that's part of what has drawn a lot of people in the news world, like myself, onto Twitter, even though a lot of times we don't really enjoy it. But I think the key question that we're all watching for is how long will Twitter's influence remain if, for example, Elon Musk continues chasing people off the platform, if uh, people like Donald Trump say, you know what, I'm done with Twitter, all these other things. So I, I am curious to see how long it is worth it to talk about it. But there's very clear reason today still, unfortunately, for some of us to talk about it. And Andy, uh, given the problems with Twitter since Elon took it over, uh, Ian mentioned uh, chasing people off the platform. Uh, is is uh, uh, Linda Yaccarina going to be able to fix some of that? Do you, do you think that she will be able to? And even if she's got some good plans to fix it, will Elon Musk let her? I believe she can do it. I mean, in, in the sense of anybody being a new CEO, if she has a vision and a strategy and a plan to do it, and she stays, sticks to her guns, I think that she can. But at the end of the day, it's the public who's going to decide if it's important, if it's an important platform or not. And I think personally that we have a long way to go before Twitter has any demise, if that's even a possibility. But as far as Elon's, I think, uh, opinion about the way that she's going to run the bit, the, the company, that's her job, right? And not that Elon's not going to speak up, but they're going to have to deal with that new relationship together. And I think that she has the possibility of doing something great. Yeah, but here's here's the thing. Um, there are two very different philosophies, right, about how to run Twitter. One is that it needs to be like a publisher, a conventional publisher, and edit the copy that flows on Twitter on any given day. And if, if somebody posts something that's derogatory, defamatory, racist, sexist, you name it, that someone has to get rid of it. And then there appears to be Elon Musk's philosophy, which is, no, we're kind of like the telephone company. Anyone can say anything they want and let the information flow. How do you then fix it? And what exactly is it that you're fixing? Andy? Yeah, at the end of the day, it's going to be the public who decides. But from day to day, from the next for the next year or two, um, I really believe that whatever, if, if they want to be, hey, we're going to say whatever we want, and maybe Miss Linda is going to say, no, we want to be a little bit more responsible. I mean, it's a morally, it's a moral responsibility to allow or not allow offensive things to be published, right? And so I think if, if Elon's going to push that button, it's going to probably not happen. I mean, it is going to be a rogue platform. All right. We want to thank our guest. Uh, that was uh, Andy Monet, a business optimization consultant. We also had Ian Sher with us, a uh, tech reporter who is obviously covering Twitter. And later in the show, we are going to talk to a doctor who may have 
The Secret to Immortality. Mm, I'm going to have some questions about that. Uh, right now, though, you might want to give your mom an IRA plan for Mother's Day this Sunday. A new analysis finds about half of moms across the country have nothing saved for retirement. Nothing. Natasha Chavez, mother of two from Phoenix, says she's having a hard time saving. With us is also a Nicole Middendorf, CEO of Prosper Well Financial. She is also a mom. Natasha, let's uh, start with you. What are some of the things that uh, knock you out of the water when you're trying to save? Um, well, hi. First of all, hi. Um, one of the things I think that would that knocks me out sometimes is um, just children getting sick or, or uh you know, the car sometimes need repair. So it's the moment you actually do start saving um, and you're like, finally, I got a little bit of a nest egg. Um, there's something that happens. And, and then, you know, there's, or, or how, you know, rent goes up or things like that. So I feel like for me personally, it's usually either like a car or healthcare um, or honestly, sometimes in life, if, me or um at the time my my spouse loses a job now you need that any type of um savings you did have now you need it to pay bills so i I would say those have been some of the issues nicole so what does somebody like natasha or somebody else uh, a mom uh single perhaps uh, with a kid and they haven't saved uh a dime what do they do and is there a point when it's too late I don't ever believe there's a point that it's too late. I mean, I, I've never met someone that has come into my office or talked to me that's like, oh, gosh, I'm glad I waited so long to talk to you. Um, you know, the, the sooner you start and the sooner you start something, the the easier it is. And so it's starting somewhere. It's It's not coming from that place of like, oh, my gosh, I'm a mom, let alone like I myself, I'm a single mom. Like you have that extra burden and that extra stress, but it's not like, oh, let me just throw my hands up in the air. Us as moms, we tend to put everyone else first. And when it comes to your finances and your own security, you know, think of what do they tell you on an airplane? You put the air mask on yourself before you put it on the person next to you. And your children would probably rather pay for their college, let alone pay for you in your retirement. And so the important thing is to take advantage of everything that's available to you. You know, if you're working and you have a job and you have a 401k plan, take advantage of it. You know, especially if there's a match that that's free money. And, you know, I, you, ha- you open this saying, get your mom an IRA. Yes. Like get your kids a Roth IRA and get yourself a Roth IRA. It's so important to, I, I mean, I get it. You know, your kids are always asking you, you know, mom, can I have this? Mom, can I have this? You know, they're a constant suck <laughs> of, of money. And so it's always putting things in a priority and then utilizing the tools and accounts and things that are out there to put systems in the place to help you. And so, you know, I, as a financial advisor, I talk about money, you know, too much, but my kids know, like I, I'll take them on trips and our deal, I take them on one-on-one trips because as a single mom, that's always the hard thing is to get individual time with each of them. Well, and uh, they know, 
Oh, go ahead. But, but Nicole, I wanted to ask you, uh, what's your advice for someone like Natasha who may not have access to uh, some of those resources that you speak of and as they try to save uh, with the best resources they have available, but then things come up. Uh, inflation ticks up. Uh, things cost more. Uh, the price of rent goes up, especially if you live in California. People know what all that's all about. Uh, your rent has gone up. And then you have things happen. Your car breaks down or you lose a job or 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 anything, uh, uh, medical bills that aren't covered uh, comes up. What's your advice to somebody like that who doesn't have those resources and that gets hit with these bombshells? Well, and that's where most people don't have, I mean, most people don't have enough towards retirement, let alone most people don't have enough towards liquid money. And that's what, you know, it's getting that dreaded B word, the budget. You know, no one likes to say, you know, I can't afford it, but you sometimes need to do that. And And it's also about, I feel like the, the, the two biggest things is that women tend to put other people first before themselves. But the second biggest thing is a lot of women, and, and this was me, we were raised like, oh, we can't do math, which means we can't do money, which means we are intimidated about talking about money ourselves. And so if we don't feel like confident about money ourselves, how do we feel we can talk to our kids about it? And that's where, you know, it's setting up things, setting up a budget and taking all this stuff that you're already spending on your children and figure what out that is, then cut it in half and give it to your kids as an allowance. Mm. You know, my kid, you, and you know, when you're in the store, you ask your kids, is that a want or is it a need? Right. Let alone, do you need to ask yourself that is it a want or is it a need? And when you shift, like, how, oh my gosh, you know, cause yeah. now my kids are teenagers. How many times where, you know, my daughter will be like, can I have this? I'm like, you know, you need to spend your own money. She's like, oh, well then I don't want it. <laughs> yeah. Nicole, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Also, Natasha Chavez, who is a mom uh, of two from Phoenix, dealing with uh, this issue that so many of us face, trying to sock money away and you can't because things happen. And Nicole Middendorf, CEO of Prosperell Financial, also joined us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Along with Rob Archer, I'm Charles Feldman. One of the big uh, philosophical questions, maybe theological as well, is... uh, Can we live forever? Now, the answer from our next guest may surprise you. Dr. Ernst von Schors is with us. He's a triple board certified clinical and academic cardiologist. He's also a clinical professor of medicine at UCLA and UC Riverside and author of the upcoming book, The Secrets of Immortality. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thank you, guys, for having me on. So uh, Rob's, uh, you know, in his introduction, raised this sort of rhetorical question, can we live forever? So the question, my first question to you is, is the answer yes? Well, it really depends who you ask. If you ask uh, a futurologist or futurist, they will say yes. There was actually just recently a New York Times article from uh, Ray Kurzweil who said within eight years we will be immortal. If you ask a, a religious person, a theologian, and I'm a theologian too, um, they will tell you absolutely you have an afterlife after our earthly existence. And if you ask a biotechnologist or a a medical doctor like myself, then I would say, no, I don't believe in biologic immortality, but I believe strongly that we will be able and we are able already to significantly prolong life. It, you raise an interesting point about the the uh, the biomechanical uh, biotechnological uh, technological aspects of this because there was a uh, a scientist uh, who said that uh, humanity will never make it to the stars, but the people who come after humanity will, and those will be some combination of humanity 
and robots or artificial intelligence. Is that a line of immortality that perhaps we might be seeing in the uh, technical world? I mean, that's what people are working on. We call that the transhumanism, which is basically the development of a species between a human being and a computer. So uh, Stephen Hawkins, a physicist, Nobel Prize winner from England who passed away a couple of years ago, said that will be, end, will be the end of human existence, most likely. And um, I, I'm not a big fan of that transhumanistic idea. Um, and I'm not a big fan of just trying with medicine or biotechnology to prolong life and having uh, create a, a generation of senior citizens sitting in wheelchairs or in skilled nursing facilities without any quality of life. And I'm always asked about that. That's not what we want. What we want and what we can do nowadays with different methods, including what we call regenerative medicine, we can really um, try to avoid or reverse even signs of degeneration which are associated with advanced ages, from heart attacks to uh, osteoarthritis to uh, kidney and liver failure to dementia, you name it. So um, medicine has really advanced over the last 20 years significantly, and we shifted from what we call reactive medicine, where we react to damage so far, to what we call regenerative medicine, where we have means in our hands nowadays, I'm not saying to prevent aging, but to at least delay processes of aging and to some degree reverse damages. And we see that I'm a cardiologist in, in the heart or in people with heart disease and heart failure, um, constantly it's possible and I'm not saying we can cure any disease so far, but we have means in our hand to uh, prolong life, improve mobility, reduce frailty, improve quality of life. Are these methods, and you talk about certain medicines, for example, uh, are they, though, readily available to the average person? Or are we talking about some modalities that are beyond the reach uh, financially, to be quite honest? of a lot of people? All of the above, Charles, all of the above. I mean, we have medications now we know since decades. Uh, I, I just named one. You all have heard about metformin, which is a medication we use in diabetics since decades. And um, animal studies uh, more than 10 years ago have shown that uh, metformin can prolong the life of rodents up to 40%. And now we understand why, because there are significant anti-cancer effects, there are significant anti-inflammatory effects, and those medications um, are available to everybody. They are not, not expensive. That's just one among many others. There's no magic pill which anyone should take or can take which prolongs life, but the, um, the, the other aspects of regenerative medicine, like stem cell therapy, for example, is not readily available. It is not FDA approved yet because of paucity of data. We still lack large clinical trial data to really prove that uh, it can do what we all know it can do as a potential to reverse damage. And if you go back to biology, there's only one species, as you probably know, which is immortal, which is a jellyfish. This is called Turiptosis domii. Whatever happens to that creature, it rebuilds its entire organism 
um, in, in large parts because of the abundance of stem cells. Mm. So we need to learn about the potential of stem cells. And no, it's not readily available. And it will take probably at least another 10 years before there's any approval or the costs coming down that people can afford it. Renowned cardiologist Dr. Ernst von Schors, his new book coming out soon, it's called The Secrets of Immortality. So let's talk a little bit about some of those secrets, doctor. What can people do on a practical level in, rather than wait until they get an illness and then they get treated, perhaps by some new medicines or new surgeries that weren't available before? And it's great that they're available now. But what can you do to head off some of those things that perhaps uh, people aren't aware of? There's a lot what we as individuals can do, and it goes back to, to, to the old dogma, I mean, diet and exercise. And it's easier said than done. I see that every single day. Um, overweight is one of the biggest risk factors. Obesity is one of the biggest risk factors for cardiovascular diseases. And we have so many new data now um, about, for example, the benefits of intermittent fasting, the benefits of a significant calorie reduction. So if you reduce your calorie intake, for example, you probably will prolong your life uh, a couple of years. The reduction of carb intake, especially in the evening. So we are all used to go to fancy restaurants having nice dinners late at night, and that's our biggest meal. It's completely wrong to do that. Ideally, and we all know that since decades now, um, the biggest meal should be our breakfast. And the, the more the day goes on, the less we should eat. <clears throat> and um, again, intermittent fasting is probably something we all could do. Reduction of carb intake, reduction of salt intake. But when, one point here, though, if you keep reducing your calories, doesn't your metabolism slow down? And in, in, in the end, you're kind of right back where you started from? Not really. That happens if you don't eat at all or if you eat just one meal a day. And I'm completely against that. So people try to lose weight, for example, by cutting out meals. It's wrong. You have to have more smaller intakes, smaller food intakes throughout the day. Some people say even every two to four hours. Um, because if you just have, let's say, only breakfast and you don't eat for the rest of the day till the next morning, then, in fact, your metabolistic activity, your GI motility, all this goes downhill and you basically um, gain weight, you don't lose weight. So you have to have some food intake, but the total amount, we all overdo it. I mean, we should eat significantly less. That's why there's a bowl of jelly beans over there. Uh, hey, there uh, are, so that, actually. So that we have some kind of intake during the uh, day. Uh, we, we, going back to exercise, uh, it is also, on the other hand, possible that uh, some exercise, uh, maybe some amount of exercise, may not be healthy, may, may actually do more harm than good. Talk about that, if you would. Absolutely. So the... Uh, the, the general recommendation for adults by the American Medical Association and the American Heart Association nowadays is to exercise five times a week with a minimum of 30 minutes per day of what we call moderate intensity exercise. So that means um, a, a, a slow walk in the evening is a social activity. That's not really exercise. Exercise means you have to be a little challenged. You have to get short of breath. You have to feel your heart pumping faster and you have to sweat a little bit. Because if you don't do that, you really don't challenge your heart and your blood vessels. And what you want to do or the reason why we want to exercise, there's a couple of reasons. One, of course, to, to train our muscles and to 
keep some strength in our skeletal system. The other one is mainly we want to keep our blood vessels elastic. If we lose elasticity of our blood vessels, that is one of the major steps towards aging. And the only way to do that with exercise is really by challenging, meaning you have to, like I said, you have to sweat, you have to push it. And I'm not saying you have to push it for an hour on a treadmill, but even if you do a walk intermittently, do like a brisk walk for a minute, we get really short of breath, and then five minutes slow, and then again, push it a little bit. What about all these, you know, these myriad of diets? Every week there's another diet. Uh, you know, don't eat this, do eat that. Uh, then next week it's no, don't eat that one, eat this one. Uh, is all that pretty much nonsense? Well, uh, I, I wouldn't say that, but we have published a couple of years ago in the uh, journal Circulation, which is like the biggest journal in cardiovascular medicine, um, a, an overview article on the effect of diets on cardiovascular health. And it turned out that a low-carb diet is probably the most beneficial compared to um, a low-fat diet, for example. Um, the biggest problem is that um, people who go on a diet, they do it usually for weight loss, and then they lose some weight, and they stop the diet, and they gain the weight, and even more than that. So you have to be really consistent, but I'm the biggest propon proponent of, like I mentioned earlier, a low-carb and reduced-calorie diet. Uh, very quickly, uh, what are some of the things that you can do now practically for your your mental acuity? Well, that's another big point. Um, of course, the, the your, your spirituality and your mental health plays a major role uh, for your body in general. And um, I mean, I'm a big fan of meditation, even though I personally don't know how to do it. But we did a study recently uh, showing that, for example, if you are a believer in something, uh, no matter what religion you are, but if you believe in a higher power or God and you, if you pray that your clinical outcome if you are diseased is better than those who don't believe in anything. Uh, one last question, which which I love asking doctors, but do you take your own advice? Well, I try to, um, and uh, yeah, at least in part, absolutely. Well, okay. There you go. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, talking about living longer or perhaps even living forever. That's Dr. Ernst von Schwartz. Got a new book coming out soon called The Secrets of Immortality. And uh, Charles, I, I I, think that was some very good advice. I'm yeah. not sure if I'm going to do a good job because I'm very bad with the exercise. And yeah. my wife will tell you that she tries so hard to get me to exercise. Well, I have to, as we've talked on the show, I've got this broken foot, so right. I've got to, once this is all... Uh, but you got healed, it because of? Because of exercise. Right. Yes, I know. There. But but i got to move. All right, got to keep moving there. Yes. And we're going to keep moving on. That's going to do it for In-Depth today. We will move on through the weekend and do another In-Depth coming Monday at 1 p.m.